Now please join me and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 today, picking up in verse 16. You can find that on page 554 of our ESVs on the cart. Ecclesiastes today, verse uh, 16, chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to be reading together through chapter 4, verse 3. We are going to be pressing into that fourth chapter. And as you're turning there and finding your place, let me remind you that as today is October 31st, that means that today is the only high holy day on the Presbyterian calendar, uh, Reformation Day. Uh, that's a joke. Uh, Presbyterians don't have any high holy days. Um, but if we did, it would be Reformation Day. Uh, we love, in the Presbyterian tradition, to celebrate Reformation Day. And if you're new or unfamiliar with Presbyterianism, you might think that's an awfully strange thing to celebrate. Reformation Day, of course, uh, is a commemoration of October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. Uh, thus sparking, well, that's where, where we uh, commemorate it from, thus sparking the Protestant Reformation, the separation from the Protestant Church away from the Roman Catholic Church. And if you think about that, it seems awfully strange that we would commemorate uh, and celebrate a schism in the church. Uh, and there is uh, a sense in which we mourn over any division in the church, and yet we are thankful for the Lord's providential care and as we think about the Protestant Reformation, it's not only a separation, but it's also a return. It's a return to the gospel of salvation through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. It is a return in many ways uh, to the scriptures. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses uh, in Wittenberg, and he's known for that and for that moment, but part of his life's labor and part of his joy in the church was as he was uh, locked away in a castle for fear of his life, he translated the Old and New Testament into the German language so the people could read the scriptures for themselves. Now, Martin Luther uh, didn't come out of nowhere. He didn't just appear on the scene as a man unto himself. Uh, but already, before Martin Luther, there was a long history of, uh, of people within the church pressing in and getting back to the reality uh, and, and the joy of reading the scriptures. You could trace that all the way back. One of the very first, he's known as the morning star of the Reformation, was an English preacher by the name of John Wycliffe. Now, he lived and ministered 150 years before that Castle Church incident. He was born around 1330 A.D., the early part of the fourth, 14th century in England. He became a preacher in England uh, and had a real hunger and a thirst for the people of England to be able to read the scriptures in their own language, which, of course, at that time was illegal for commoners. That's strange, because the only scripture they were allowed to read from or to have read to them was the Latin Vulgate. Uh, Vulgate, of course, meaning vulgar or common. The common language of the people, when it was put together by Jerome, was no longer the common language of the people, especially if you were an English peasant, and so Wycliffe had this desire for the English people to be able to read God's word in English. He set about with a team of, uh, of translators helping him to translate the Bible, not from the Greek and the Hebrew, that would be William Tyndall who came later to do that into English, but he translated it from the Latin Vulgate. He got in hot water with the church authorities. 
But as he dug further and further into the scriptures, what you find in Wycliffe, though we wouldn't call him a Protestant in the way that we understand Protestantism today, Wycliffe really uh, was a forerunner and a precursor of many of the doctrines that are important in Protestantism. Here's one of the things that Wycliffe wrote uh, dealing with the idea of justification. He said, trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on his sufferings, beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. That sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? And there were other things that as uh, Wycliffe read the scriptures, he did not find. And so he was a strong advocate uh, for the abdication or, or, or the removal of the papacy. Uh, he was a strong proponent against the doctrine of transubstantiation. A lot of the things that, uh, that ring true in our, our Protestant ears. Uh, but his lasting legacy, of course, was the importance of the scriptures in the common language. And those that came after him were known as the Lollards. Uh, for whatever reason, the etymology of the word is lost, but they were a group of people who were committed to Bible reading groups. They weren't an organized church. They were a group of people in Bible study. And they read the scriptures together, and they also got in trouble with the church authorities. And although Wycliffe died peacefully in his bed at an old age of a stroke, uh, his uh, followers and, and the Lollards who came after him were often persecuted by the church. In fact, 40 years after Wycliffe's death, he was finally condemned as a heretic, and as often happened, his body was exhumed, his bones were burned, and his ashes were dumped into the Thames so nobody could find a relic of John Wycliffe. The same thing happened to Jan Hus, uh, a man in Czechoslovakia, uh, who, uh, Prague at the time, Bohemia, uh, and, uh, and he also wanted the scriptures to be read by the common people. He was influenced by the Lollards. He, too, was killed by the church. His bones were burned and dumped uh, into the river so nobody could find a relic of Jan Hus. Why? Because he wanted people to be able to read the scriptures. Well, fast forward to Martin Luther. And he appears before the church authorities. And here is what they charge Martin Luther with. They tell him that he's a Hussite, a follower of Jan Hus. And at the time, Luther said that he didn't know what a Hussite was. And so he went and he studied and he came back and he said, actually, I am a Hussite. And a Hussite was a Lollard, and a Lollard was a Wycliffe man. And so here we celebrate not only a split in the church, but a return to God's word in the language of the people so that we can understand it. Well, let's turn now to God's word together. Thankful for his provident care of his church as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And before we read it, let's pray that the Lord would give us understanding of what he's about to teach us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the gift that we can hear it, we can understand it, we can receive it. We pray that you also would give the gift of your Holy Spirit, that you would uh, write its eternal truth upon our hearts. Help us, O oh Lord, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, and that we would receive life in Christ's name. Help us to be drawn to him, even through these words and these uh, sentences written so long ago by another one of David's sons. Help us, O oh Lord, uh, to see great David's greater son, our King and Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, reading to chapter 4, verse 3. 
Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant word may add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, it's a, uh, it's a long-standing legal maxim, an adage uh, of law that says that justice really comes down to what the judge ate for breakfast. Uh, to test that theory, back in 2010, a team of legal researchers uh, in Israel and in the United States went about studying the transcripts of 1,100 parole board hearings. These hearings uh, were taken from uh, eight different boards with eight different judges and covered the span of about 10 months. Uh, and they were paying particular attention as they studied these things to what time of day the cases were decided and how long the judges had been presiding without a break. And in their analysis, they found a pattern. Researchers found that requests for parole heard first thing in the morning had a pretty consistent 65% chance of being granted favorably. And then as the hours wore on, as the day uh, grew longer, that uh, percentage steadily and persistently decreased until it all but disappeared right before the midday break. While after lunch, when the boards came back, the cycle repeated from about 65 to about zero, right before everybody went home for the day. Uh, there, there may be many multiple complicating factors. The, the data is only uh, ever one piece of the analysis, but from what we see, the findings seem to be of indication uh, of Mr. Perker's analysis. Uh, Mr. Perker is a lawyer from the world of Charles Dickens. And in the Pickwick Papers, he advises his client that a well-breakfasted juryman is a capital thing to get hold of. A hungry juryman, my dear sir, always fine for the plaintiff. Well, Solomon didn't need data. And Solomon didn't need Dickens to tell him what we all sometimes suspect about the legal system. The fact that, that sometimes the courts are the last place that justice shows up. The fact that sometimes the people who have power use it just to keep their subjects in subjection. Uh, 
This is not a new phenomenon. I know that, uh, that injustice and oppression are the watchwords of our 21st century American culture, but this is not a new thing that we've just invented 20 years ago. This has been happening ever since we first stepped out of God's perfect garden. Sinful humanity has always had a way of using violence and power and oppression to make victims out of the vulnerable. It's not a new problem. It is not an isolated issue. It is not a partisan issue. In fact, when you actually sit down and begin to contemplate the extent of human injustice, it can feel like chewing those tablets that your dentist gives you. Right? And pretty soon, after a while, even the teeth you thought were clean reveal themselves to be covered in plaque you didn't know was there. Now, well, human injustice seems to be one more problem that we can get rid of on our own. Oppression seems to be one more obstacle to finding our significance, our, uh, our satisfaction in this vain life under the sun, as Solomon has been teaching us from Ecclesiastes. So he says, I saw injustice. He says, I saw oppression. And, and we might ask, well, what are we to do then? What are we to think about these things? Well, the first thing we have to do is open our eyes. We have to be willing to see what Solomon saw. We have to be willing to level with the problem of our human injustice. That is our first point today, the problem of our human injustice. Now, the preacher frames the issue at the boundaries of our text. That's why we've gone into chapter 4. Uh, you see at the start and at the end these, these twin issues of injustice and oppression. Chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. It's a thing that should not be, and it's in the place that you least hope to expect it. And yet there it is. Wickedness reigning where justice and righteousness ought to be. And here in verse 13, it seems that Solomon is speaking specifically about injustice in the law courts. He's, he's talking about greasy palms and backroom deals. He's talking about bribes and hushed conversations. He's, he's talking about malign powers gathering together to see how they can get ahead and have a show of legitimacy. He's talking about partiality in the very places where there ought to be fair and unbiased judgments. It could be that he's talking about an injustice that has been systematized, that is really upheld by the system in place at the time. It could be that he's talking about injustice that, that merely abuses the system, but either way, uh, it is the polar opposite of what God called his people to do, how he told them to deal with complaints and court cases. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, God said, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You hear the same language there uh, in Leviticus that we find in Ecclesiastes, this combination of justice and righteousness. And it means that false judgments aren't just an inconvenience. It means they are abject wickedness. False judgments and injustice are sins against the people of God. They are sins against the God of his people. It's the world that we live in, though, isn't it? It's a world where evil is sometimes legitimized and legislated by crooked leaders who are seeking to scratch their own itching self-interests. 
He says he saw injustice. And when it's not happening in the courtrooms, the Capitol buildings, it's happening in the streets. That's the point of chapter 4. Verse 1, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And it, it explodes this, uh, this issue into a universal problem. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and you don't need a government position to take advantage of those who are vulnerable, do you? All you need, as Solomon says, is power. All you need is the ability and the opportunity to devour somebody else for your own selfish gain. And so maybe it's done to gain a position. Small injustices where one co-worker steals another co-worker's idea and passes it off as their own to get ahead of the other. Maybe it's done to gain pleasure. And so a man abuses a woman and throws her away like trash because that's what he wants for himself. Maybe it's done to, uh, to gain your own convenience. And so a mother decides that it's, it's easier, it's a better choice to abort the baby than to go through with raising a child. Maybe it's done uh, simply to entrench your power a little bit further. And so we see the gangs and we see the cartels in every major city uh, and they have this terrorization of the communities there and they enlist and they... Uh, they get these young men without fathers to further perpetuate the cycles of fear and domination. But all it takes to become an oppressor is an imbalance of power and the will to abuse it. That's all that you need. And if your eyes are open like Solomon's eyes are open, you begin to see it happening everywhere. See it in the countries that we pray for every week. The places where Christians are are murdered, they're forced from their homes, they're taken from their jobs and their families, they're, uh, they're sold into forced marriages. They're beaten and they're tortured and they're imprisoned and they're executed. Why? Because they have become followers of Jesus. You see it in homes across our country, even so-called Christian homes, where fathers keep their children cowering in fear, where husbands keep their wives in check because they've got this constant threat of physical violence. You see it happening in the streets of every city where the victims of sex trafficking are abducted and addicted and sold to meet the lusts of filthy men. You find it in our history books every time one ethnicity decides that another ethnicity is not only different, but they're wrong. They're an obstacle to progress and to good order. You see it happening in churches. Where there are egotistical leaders and they would rather be revered than held accountable. They would rather eat the sheep than feed them. And if you just think back through some of the headlines you've seen and some of the examples that I'm thinking of, I bet like Solomon you begin to see it everywhere. It doesn't stop there. You notice that between the, the overwhelming injustice in the courts and the oppression happening all around in the streets, Solomon feels practically paralyzed, debilitated. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. Better yet, the one who hasn't been born. Why? Because they haven't seen all that happens 
the way we've seen all that happens. Doesn't it sometimes feel that way? Oh, for the bliss of ignorance. Oh, for the blessing of being unaware that these things are happening and so we throw ourselves into our diversions and into our amusements. We bury our heads in the sand of everything that can keep those things at bay so we don't have to see them or think about them, but they're still happening. In Montgomery, Alabama, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice is informally known as the Lynching Museum. It houses 805 steel rectangles hanging from a ceiling. Those rectangles are etched with the names of 4,400 black men, women, and children who between the years 1877 and 1950 were hanged, shot, burned, drowned, or beaten to death by white mobs in America. In 1975, the communist leader Pol Pot led the Khmer Rouge into an ethnic, religious, political purge that led to the death of a quarter of the population of Cambodia. Between 1910 and 1970, more than 100,000 Aboriginal Australian children were forcibly removed from their families in order to re-educate them and then re-assimilate them into the prevailing white culture. In 2017, Iceland made international headlines when it announced that it was on pace to become the first nation to eliminate Down syndrome. Not through genetic research, not through gene therapy, through abortion. And today, in Denmark, 95% of mothers who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome abort their children. And don't you sometimes wish you could claim that you weren't aware that it's happening? Well, if Ecclesiastes was a prophetical book, if it was a psalm, we, we might find a much different approach to some of these issues. Right? Different answers to the problems of injustice. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told repeatedly that the Lord abhors the oppression of the innocent and the vulnerable. Elsewhere in Proverbs, we are commanded to rescue those who are being taken away to death, to hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. But this is Ecclesiastes, and here, Solomon's aim is merely to make us feel the weight of these atrocities. He wants it to sit heavy on your shoulders and on your heart. He wants the horror of these things to stop us in our tracks and make us notice what goes on all around us. He wants us to stop living as though the goal of humanity is to fulfill the mission of the John T. and Catherine D. MacArthur Foundation. You heard them underwriting on NPR, telling us that they're supporting creative people and effective institutions committing to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Is that what we need? Creative individuals and effective communications, a more just, peaceful, and verdant world, will that bring about the utopia of equity we think we deserve? And if it did, would we be happy in the long run? Would it be a satisfaction that lasts? Or does that language just remind us of a million other attempts by a thousand other organizations to try and squeeze one drop of sweetness out of an incurably rotten fruit? Solomon does not want us to fool ourselves into expecting great change through our humanistic achievements. For the time being, he simply wants us to see what he sees and to sense what he senses. 
wants us to consider the crimes that sometimes make non-existence seem more attractive than experience. He wants us to see this debilitating problem of our human injustice. He wants us to see it because once we've seen it, then we can go about seeing what God is up to by allowing it to continue. That's how he answers this problem. You, you notice that between the injustice in verse 16 and the oppression of chapter 4, Solomon gives two counsels to his own broken heart. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge. And verse 18, I said in my heart, God is testing. These are two of the answers that Solomon gives to the problem of injustice and oppression. They're not the only two answers because this theme is going to come back as we continue through Ecclesiastes. But for right now, this is the answer that he gives us. For now, once we've seen this problem, we need to know what God will do about it and what he's doing about it already. And so verse 17, our second point, we need to know the promise of God's coming judgment. The promise of God's coming judgment. You know, last week after worship, one uh, observant person pointed out that I didn't say anything about verse 15. <laughs> uh, and there are two good reasons for that. Uh, first, as our elder Steve Barry likes to remind me, uh, the preacher can't say everything. Uh, though if you've been here for a while, you know that doesn't normally stop me from trying. Uh, and so the second good reason I didn't mention anything about verse 15 is that verse 15 is a transitional verse. It is a bridge that connects the conversation we had last week about God's timing with the conversation we're having this week about human injustice. The point uh, of verses 1 to 15 is that God has a plan. He's got a perfect purpose for everything that happens. So verse 11 tells us God has made everything beautiful in its time. And maybe we can agree with that, with those, those things that seem beautiful to us. But what about those things that seem so ugly, so repugnant to us, that we're tempted to wonder, maybe God has just gone on vacation at this point. Maybe he's disconnected. He's, he's not paying attention to what's happening here. And so verse 15, even before he takes up this question of injustice, Solomon is preparing us. I think the New International Version, if you've got that in front of you, the NIV has a better translation of verse 15 than our ESV. Here's how the NIV puts it. Whatever is has already been. Whatever will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. The King James follows a similar idea, and both of them are preparing us for the idea that the Lord of history is also the judge of history. He doesn't turn a blind eye to our injustice. He's not off duty when it comes to our oppression. The God of all righteousness will bring all wickedness to, to account. And so verse 17 says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. It's part of God's perfect, appropriate, beautiful plan. And that means it's coming. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour. Sometimes we may be so weighed down by sorrow over what we see happening in the world that we wish it would come sooner. Nevertheless, it's coming. This promise built upon the foundation 
of God's perfect, almighty, sustaining sovereignty. There is a day coming when the trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. And on that day, every deed done and every word spoken will be weighed in the balance of God's perfect holiness. Every scandal will be exposed. Every bribe will be broadcast. The Lord will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's how Paul put it. In Athens, when he spoke to the philosophers there, the Lord will judge the earth in righteousness. I don't know, maybe you're, you're a little surprised that Solomon started here rather than ending here. Right, he considers the problem of injustice, and his first answer is God's judgment. Maybe you're surprised because that's backwards from the way that we often approach these things. Often we see injustice in the world, and our first response is to fight and to scrap and to try and figure out and fix everything that we can see. But then when we get to a point where we can't see everything that's there, or we can't fix everything that we do see, we throw up our hands and we make it sort of a last-ditch effort, and we say, well, the Lord will judge. It becomes a sort of consolation prize at the end when we've run out of options. That's not what Solomon does. This is where he starts. It is, by the way, where he ends as well. Right? The last verse in Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 14, the last thing he tells us, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He does end there, but he also starts there. It's not some last-ditch effort to answer the question of repentance. It's Solomon's first recourse, verse 17, God will judge the righteous, and the wicked. And that's where we also need to start when we answer the problem of oppression. I think there are a few pretty good applications of this truth here. The first application is obviously a word of warning. If God will come and judge the righteous and the wicked, we are on notice. Do not engage in, in deeds of wickedness like some do. Do not be party to oppression, as, as Proverbs 1 says, when the crowd comes and says, join us, let's lie and wait for blood, let's ambush them and fill our purses. Don't join them, don't be a part of what they're doing. It's a warning. Has God given you power or authority over anyone? Are you a parent? Are you a spouse? Are, are you, are you a, a worker? Are you an employer? Has the Lord put you in any place in the church, in society, where you have authority over another person? It's a warning. Refuse to abuse the power the Lord has given you over other people. Instead of playing the wolf, be a shepherd like our Savior. Use your strength to lead, to support those in your charge. It's a word of warning. It's also a word of comfort, I believe, this word of judgment. You notice the sad reality that Solomon tells us about those who are being oppressed. He tells us twice in, in chapter 4. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and they had no one to comfort them. He's not talking just about the comfort of reassuring words here. Although that's a help. And if, if you've ever been 
hurt or, or oppressed or, or, or abused in, in some way, it, it's good to have people who can speak words of comfort, but that's not what he has in mind here. He's speaking about the comfort that our oppressors will be dealt with. He's talking about the comfort of closure. Perhaps the saddest thing you will ever see and ever encounter in this life is a family that has been torn apart by an abuse that has been acknowledged and then hidden instead of dealt with. It happens sometimes, normally when a child is abused, molested. And the abuse comes from somewhere close to home. Maybe it's a cousin, maybe it's a brother-in-law, but it's a little too close for comfort. And, and so uh, instead of making any waves in the extended family, the father of the child decides to play the coward. The abuse becomes something that is not spoken of, full stop. It's acknowledged, and then it's hidden. It's silenced for the sake of keeping the peace. That's not what the child needs. The child in that situation needs the comfort of closure. They need the knowledge that what happened to them was wrong and that it cannot be tolerated, that it will not be tolerated. And so maybe that's why Solomon answers our injustice with God's judgment first. Because if you're the one who has been oppressed or abused, you need the comfort of closure. You need to know that the God of mercy does not see and acknowledge the hurts that his people have experienced and then stuff them under a rug somewhere where they can only stink and fester but never really die. So maybe it's a warning and, and maybe it's a comfort today, but Solomon's first answer to the problem of our injustice is the promise of God's coming judgment. That's what God will do. And his second answer concerns what God is already doing. So beginning in verse 18, Solomon helps us to understand the power of our humbling mortality. That's our final point today, the power of our humbling mortality. Read it, verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. It's a very specific point. Uh, that Solomon is making. He is not denying the dignity of, of humanity. He's not saying that we haven't been made in God's image, as, as Genesis tells us. He is making a specific point. He wants us to see that in one very important respect, we are no better than the animals. And that respect is the respect of our mortality. We all have one breath, he says. We all return to one place, he says. Man has no advantage over the beast. And physically speaking, it's true. As the animals die, so do we. The body of a cow, if left in a field, will rot and disintegrate, just like our bodies, if left in a field and not embalmed, will, rust, will, will rot and disintegrate. We are as mortal and curse-bound, that's the language there, dust to dust, you see it, that's the language of the curse. We're as mortal and curse-bound as the smallest fly or the largest elephant. And this is a message that is consistent with the rest of Scripture. In fact, in the rest of Scripture, it gets worse. <laughs> Moses wrote Psalm 90, in Psalm 90, verse 6, Moses tells us that humanity is like the grass that flourishes in the morning, and then in the evening it fades, it withers. 
Isaiah says the same thing. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. So don't be offended when, when Solomon tells you that you're a beast. Instead, you should be humbled. You should sit quietly and consider your end. This is what God wants you to see. A mortality that, that humbles you. And so maybe if, if the pursuit of significance or, or wisdom or, or happiness or labors or all the other things that Solomon has been pursuing and showing us, if that hasn't produced a meditation on your mortality, maybe acknowledging and seeing the oppression that happens in the world, maybe that will finally teach you the wisdom of having your days numbered. It will lay you low in humility. God wants us to see a mortality that makes us humble. Not that we see these things and then look at, at some people out there. You know, there's a special class of sinners and they're called oppressors. And we are not and we sit above the, the realm of such people and we cast our judgments down upon them. That's not what we're supposed to see here. You've been oppressed, haven't you? In some ways. My guess is you're able to return it pretty well too, aren't you? How do you respond when, when you're oppressed? Do you respond in sinful anger? Do you respond in, in outburst? Do you respond in bitterness? Do you respond in slander? Do you respond with lawsuits? Do you respond with ways to, to see how you can make them suffer the way that you have suffered at their hands? God is testing us. That we would see that we are but beasts. The Lord is teaching us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all live with the blood of brutality pumping through our mortal veins. And so while we cry out to God against the oppressions that we experience, uh, we're pretty quick to ignore those cruelties that come from us. We are experienced. We are practiced at taking our own oppressions and, uh, and rationalizing them away, making them look smaller than they actually are. The result is that we all to a man and to a woman, demonstrate Paul's analysis of the injustices we endure and perpetuate under the sun. That's how Paul put it. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's mortal life. Get what you can get. Secure your own future. Eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. And so it's a little puzzling when Solomon brings in some of his old, cynical, spiritual skepticism in verse 21, isn't it? Who knows, he says. Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the, the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that's his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him, and somewhere you swear that in the background somebody's playing John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. It, it's pretty easy if you try, right? Almost sounds as if Solomon is saying, who knows and who cares? Uh, there's nothing for sure. There's nothing good. There's nothing bad. There's only what we've got. There's only today. Imagine all the people living for today. Is that the answer? I don't believe the hype. <laughs> verse 21, I, I hate uh, to ruin the surprise, but verse 21 is another setup. 
In verse 21, the preacher is lulling us back into that old earthbound way of thinking so that eventually when we get there, he can show us how ineffectual it all is. He can show us how empty the world's answers are to the problems of our injustice, just living for the day. Where does your spirit go? Does it go up? Does it go down? Is there consciousness after death? Can you take all of your memories and all of your experiences and download uh, them onto some hard drive somewhere and upload them onto the cloud so you can live forever with the power of AI? Nobody knows. There's no scientific experiment that has answered this question. Who knows? Well, Solomon knows. <laughs> Actually, and in chapter 12, he's going to pull the rug out from under all of it. Here's what he says in chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come, the years of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Who knows? Solomon knows. This is where we're headed. This is where we go. Here we are passing our days in in malice and, and envy, hated by others, hating one another, but the Spirit returns to the God who gave it. The Spirit returns to the same God who, he says, will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And Solomon wants us to level with just how quickly it all passes before that happens. He wants us to be humbled now before those evil days come. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 in, in the New Testament, the, the Lord's kindness and his patience is on display. It's evident by the fact that he delays his judgment, though we all look around at the world and we know his judgment ought to be coming by now, right? In 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, he says, He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Could it be that while the Lord allows our injustices to continue, that he's exercising the same patience? Could it be that he's, he's showing us mercifully now how beastly we can be? So that we turn and cry out, not just that the Lord would rescue us, but the Lord would forgive us and save us as well. Well, this is how the preacher Solomon answers the problem of our human injustice. He doesn't give us platitudes about, about our glorious potential. But he gives a promise about God's coming judgment. And he gives us the power of our humbling mortality. I know that as we think about oppressions and injustice, it, it's a difficult thing to see, to behold. Whether we're looking at it in the world or we're looking at it in our own hearts. But, but don't give in to the temptation to turn away just because it's uncomfortable. Turn to the Lord. He's the one who bears our iniquity. Turn to Christ. He's the one who is our judge and also our redeemer. Rejoice in the Lord. Know that with him is full pardon. He's the only one who can give us peace in the face of our oppression. That's what Solomon wants us to do, to remember our Creator now, while we can, while he's still speaking. He wants us to turn and be healed. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would impress its truth upon our hearts. 
We pray that you would give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by faith give us life in his name. Teach us, Father, to come to you and teach us of your goodness when we do, when we come to Christ and and find life in his name. Thank you for the many sitting here who have done exactly that. Confirm us, O Lord, in our faith. Give us assurance that you are the one who works out all of our oppressions and injustices. You're the one who will not let anything slip. Convince us and confirm us again in the reality that all of our injustices through repentance and faith are laid upon Christ and we receive his righteousness. We receive justification because he was the one unjustly treated. Help us to see a picture of Christ, we pray, even here. We ask in Jesus' name.